when I sit for the performances, so I don't perform, I'm not um, actually musical at all. And so when I sit to listen to the performers, it's like hour two, it feels, it starts to feel sacred. And then hour three, everyone hates it. Everybody hates it. And then if you're lucky and you can stick it out, like hour four, it comes back to you. Usually it comes back to you. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Bethany Collins has an exhibition up until April 16th at Patron Gallery in Chicago. The show is called Cadence. It features work based upon the Star-Spangled Banner, Dixie, and Old Lang Syne, three familiar tunes that have been repeatedly rewritten with lyrics that reflect social and political movements. Collins' work, as she puts it, relies upon the language of others to make sense of the world. In this podcast, Bethany Collins makes sense of the relationship between her installations and the works that she produces. I hope you enjoy it. Bethany, thank you for agreeing to do this. It's really uh, very kind of you. Oh, it's my pleasure. So you have a show that's just uh, opened in Chicago called Cadences? Cadence. Mm-hmm. Cadence. And uh, I thought we could start by you just telling us a bit about the the show, and then I have all sorts of different questions after that. That sounds great. So um, Cadence, the title of the show comes from, or the meaning of it is about when a kind of movement or score, a piece of music comes to a close. And so I've been working with Contrafacta for some time, since 2016 at least. Uh, and Contrafacta are songs where the melody remains really consistent. It's a typically a familiar song. We all know it. And the melody remains the same so that we're all on the same page. But then the lyrics get rewritten for different social political causes. So the heart of the show uh, are a kind of multi-panel works based around the Star-Spangled Banner, which is a contrafacta or contrafactum. Um, and so the Star-Spangled Banner was rewritten for, the lyrics were rewritten for suffrage and temperance, lots of prohibition versions, but also native sovereignty and the Confederacy has their versions of the anthem, but so does the Union Army and so do abolitionists. And they're all essentially singing, you know, they're singing the same If they stood in the room and sang their songs, their versions of the anthem, it would sound strikingly familiar. But their version of what it means essentially to be American is, you know, drastically different. And that that idea around contrafactum um, of a kind of familiar noise that they produce when you hear all these versions at the same time is at the heart of this show. But specifically, this show is three works, one around the Star Spangled Banner, one around Old Lang Syne and one around Dixie. Yes, yes. Three songs, uh, the songs that you mentioned, there are a lot of works in the show, but they're all kind of built around those songs and and versions of them that have been written from the 18th to really 20th centuries. I was really struck, I, uh, I, both in looking at um, your America 
a hymnal work, which is on the same idea, taking My Country Tis of Thee, which was built on the um, melody of God Save the King or que- Queen yeah, one or the other. and repurposed in multiple way- ways. And and then you created a book with all these different versions. And then on top of that, you, uh, I guess, you know, you structured or adapted the book so that it, it, it kind of falls apart in, in use. Can you describe that a little? Yeah. So one of the um, kind of mournfully beautiful versions that are part of that new hymnal. So the, the first line of my country tis of the sweet land of Liberty. And I think 1839 morphs into this mournful abolitionist verse, my country tis of the stronghold of slavery of thee, I sing, land where my fathers died, where men, man's rights deride from every mountainside, thy deeds shall ring. The language is very similar, but it, but just that kind of shift between who is speaking, who is singing this anthem um, and who is the father that we're talking of in that song becomes very different. And so I found a hundred versions of these um, versions of my country, Tis of Thee, and bound them all together in the same hymnal. So they must reside together forever. Even when they contradict one another, they must live together within this one book. And then I burned the musical notation away. So what kind of holds these dissenting versions of what it means to be American uh, together as one song, that's absent by the end of the process. And all that's left are the lyrical dissenting you know, um, opinions of what it means to belong to this place. That burning then is done with a laser cutter and it's so delicate and small. It's very um, kind of intense burning of the pages means that once the musical notes are burned, all that's left is their kind of negative space, the absence of them. And if you read through the text, then those absent moments, the kind of gaps in the in the sheet music, they start to cling together and bunch up, and it makes the reading of the text that much more difficult. I can imagine, and my hope is that some of these, they do belong to institutions now. They're in the collections of institutions where they will be pristine in 25 years. And there are also parts, uh, hymnal editions that belong to collectors or institutions that allow for people are invited to turn the pages and that in 25 years, they will be an utter mess and illegible um, and painful to try to try to make sense of. And both of those kind of versions feel like possibilities of democracy, right? That we have the ideal and we have the reality of it. And they're both uh, equally true. So the the messiness of all of this detritus or, you know, the, the waste from the process is a demonstration of the declension of, uh, uh, of ideas and the confusion of them. I was so struck by this because for this to be realized, for someone to realize your artistic vision, they have to commit to doing something that most institutions are opposed to, right? You just said that, well, keep them pristine. I, I, I'm not even sure. I mean, I'd love to hear about, are the laser cutting is done before the sheaves are bound as a book or after they're bound as a book? Before. So I do the burning of the text. And then I worked with a bookmaker here in town, Candor Arts. Um, that's undergoing a bit of a evolution now, but they were a wonderful bookmaker who bound all of the versions together after they're burned. 
So that's got to be a delicate process. Yeah. Uh, to get a pristine <laughs> copy is going to be very hard in the first uh, place. But then you've got somebody has to commit to realizing your vision, even if it means no longer having the the original work, uh, original in quotes, but, you know, the pristine uh, work and, and, and all. And you don't really have any control over that. Mm. Um, my kind of the end of my... I like a lot of control in my work. I think that's pretty, that's like visually clear, but this, the end of my control is once the work is like in the world um, and whether one chooses to participate in democracy and in the reading of the text and in the messiness of the hymnal then is kind of up to the viewer, sometimes to the institution and then also to the viewer. But I think they're both I've, I haven't given a kind of instruction along with the hymnal that it, it must always be shown under a vitrine. It must never be shown under a vitrine. I want that. Uh, I want the choice to be ours or to be the viewers. Yeah. And does does getting those works placed uh, with the right either institutions or collectors to realize that vision uh, is that essential to what you're doing, or is that just a you know a plus? Uh, uh, you know, I think it's a plus. You know, I did a performance of the hymnal down in Miami. It was that at Locust Projects 2016, 2016 or 17? It was like right after the election, and I did an open call for singers. Anyone could come and sing from the hymnal for 30 minutes. Um, and this is based on, I grew up, I grew up in Alabama in a Presbyterian church. We used to do these 48 hour, 72 hour Bible readings. And you would like come and read from the text. Anybody could come democracy. And so I did the same thing for this performance. Anybody could come and sing for 30 minutes. And I got some beautiful singers, beautiful professional amateur singers. And then I had one singer who was terrible. And I think they did it on purpose. They were terrible. And in the moment, it made me like deeply uncomfortable because I like that control. And a friend of mine, a curator from Davidson College said, oh, actually, that was the good moment. That's when it's really bad. That feels accurate to democracy, too. And so to your question about like where the works go, it's kind of a it's kind of the gallery does a wonderful job of placing works where they should be in the world. But I like that kind of the tension that comes from not knowing what will happen to the work, depending on where it exists. And so much of your work, uh, uh, I think we should make clear, there's also often a, an audio component, not just in this performance, but in, in many of your works, there's there's the music or the tune playing and, and all, all. So you're, you're creating installations or almost immersive experiences as much as you are creating objects. The, uh, um, mm-hmm. At least in some of the things that are shown, there's the detritus of, of the, the book and all is sort of strewn around the edges of an area where there's a book in in the center is that does that have does it have to be all together to be the work is it the, no. the components does do you have to have the music uh, talk a little bit about the modularity of it all i actually am happiest when they're divorced from one another so that they feel complete you have to consider each of them as as entities on their own but the audio work came from um and there is an audio work in Cadence as well that's based around Auld Lang Syne. It's a similar idea. The first time I tried this was at uh, Peabody Essex. It was in, in relationship to the Jacob Lawrence show, where he's showing the struggle series, all of these less known, less well-known or familiar moments in American history. And he recenters who's at the heart of, of a particular American moment, historical moment. And so for my um, contribution to that show was to record six singers 
all singing a hundred versions of My Country Tis a Bee at the same time. And they're all singing different versions. They're not, it's just, you stand in the middle of the room and it sounds like chaos, but it's also really familiar chaos because the melody that you know so well is still, still really present, but you can't make out anything that's being said. And that, that audio work was the first, I think, you know, after the hymnal and after the performance, it felt closest to getting at that post-2016 presidential election moment where the world felt familiar. It was like, oh, we should should have known this would happen because this is just what we do. This is this cyclical reconstruction redemption moment. And also it's chaotic and it feels like a betrayal. And to stand in the middle of that, I think captures a lot of that, a lot of those emotions. But to answer your question, no, the audio does rarely has to be shown together. There really are complete works on their own. And and these three songs, uh, the multiple works, but with these three very different songs, are uh, uh, they're they're meant to be juxtaposed. I mean, certainly the Star Spangled Banner and and Dixie, yeah. but Old Lang Syne is that it in relation to those other two? Is it just the similar sort of theme of familiarity, but also confusion? I mean, I. I don't know that anyone really knows the the words to Old Lang Syne beyond the first line <laughs> the first or two, two, let alone he's good at sp- like, speaking Scottish at all. Yes, yes. So it's um it's originally a Scottish folk song. Um, for my work again, I'm researching. I think there's 51 versions of Old Lang Syne um, for the work. Five singers singing 51 versions, but I was most interested in this World War One version, 1917. Uh, that British soldiers would sing supposedly in the trenches. And it's just a repetition of we're here because we're here because we're here over and over again. And the style note for the song would say, sing it until you're exhausted. So it has no determined end. It is based on how long you can endure. That song, then that version is always being sung in the piece within the show. Someone is always singing that one. And then the other singers are kind of interchanging the other 51 versions. Suffrage, Union, Confederate, Temperance versions. But we're here because we're here is the is becomes the kind of melody of the work. I, I, I'm gobsmacked because I just realized that's the tune to Old Lang Syne. Yeah. I, I, that... that, that annoying song which yeah. i think of as being you know something kids do to to yeah. uh, you know either pass the time or annoy people is i didn't connect the melody to yeah. uh, old lang syne and and it makes so much sense in the context of world war one and the trenches and the uh, bleak uh bleak uh, existentialism of the moment yes but at the same time there's this moment when most of for most of that audio work it's kind of familiar chaos. Everybody's singing at once, but then everyone will drop out. And there's a moment of like a duet between two singers singing. We're here because we're here. And one singer sounds bleak and futile. And the other sounds hopeful that I think you can sing that verse and it, um, that futile kind of hopefulness struggles against each other. It's also a song of progression. Like it's the song we sing at midnight to welcome in the new year. It implies that there is a future but to sing we're here because we're here also traps us in this perpetual pre- present, this moment forever. And it cycles around. And I'm, I think that work then is also, I think that work speaks to the show, speaks to cadence. Like there is no resolution that I'm offering uh, in the exhibition. It feels futile. And there is also, you know, cause for hope and 
we're in the middle of it. We're not like on the other side after the strike stroke of midnight. We're we're right in the middle. So you spend a lot of time with all of these songs, you, mm-hmm. all these different versions, the different recording. I mean, you work with these songs co- constantly. How does your relationship to them change? Or do you get, do you go through those cycles of like loving them, hating them, and then rediscover? I mean, mm-hmm. tell, tell me more about what it's like to work with a, a a tune a hundred different times in so many different media. I'm still singing Auld Lang Syne in my mind. Probably. Yeah. It's still in there when I sit for the performances. So I don't perform. I'm not um, actually musical at all. And so when I sit to listen to the performers, it's like hour two, it feels, it starts to feel sacred. That repetition becomes like, makes something secular precious. And then hour three, everyone hates it. Everybody hates it. And then if you're lucky and you can stick it out, like hour four, it comes back to you. Usually it comes back to you. At least that's been my experience. You hate it and then you love it again. It's like a relationship, a long-term <laughs> relationship. <laughs> does does that apply with the other songs as well? Oh, all of them. Yeah. I mean, Auld Lang Syne is really catchy. Dixie's really catchy, unfortunately. Um yeah, they all they all turn on you. But if you're if you can wait till the fourth hour, it might come back. Hmm. And you work in audio, but also on paper. And and I think you've um, described your work as drawings. Mm-hmm. But it, it's you know you're working with printed materials and all. all. So you view it as drawing, just w- without the the pencil. Yeah, I think my com- I think of myself first as like I, I work works on paper. That's my jam. Um, even with the hymnal, even the burning of the, the uh, musical notes away, that still feels like drawing. Even the Star Spangled Banner works in the show that are on panel and there's paint involved, they still feel like drawing to me. Because there's something about a kind of repeated action to figure something out that feels truer to drawing than it does to painting. Uh, I also went to, um, I had a residency in uh, Charlotte one time, and I was just starting these new painted works. Uh, the noise, new noise series. I said, yeah, I'm trying to figure out this, um, this new golden matte acrylic paint. And I said this to a painter and she said, you can't just pick up painting. Do you think you're painting? <laughs> it's like, never mind. I'm drawing. You're right. I'm drawing. Never mind. <laughs> so you got moon girled into being a, a, draw, a, a drawer instead of a painter. <laughs> but I think the immediacy of drawing is more, feels truer to me than painting to me. In the sense that it's not, you're not creating a finished object that's, that's meant to be like done, shellacked, put it in a frame, here you go. Yeah. You know, even the erasure works that are, um, the Aeneid works that are also in the show, which are erasures of translations of the Aeneid from different years, different translators like that. I stopped fixing that work. There's no adhesive, you know, so I'm rewriting the Aeneid text. Um, in this case, it's a screen print of that text using a little bit of spit to erase. And so it eats into the top surface of the page, creates a really particular kind of texture. But it also means that the the kind of residue and fragments of the paper, each time the work is like lifted off the wall, moved, framed, shown in a different place, that that residue keeps moving. That's really important to the process and the concept of the piece. And so that feels closer to drawing. Like the language can still shift. It can still, it can still move over time. 
it's not fixed. And you have a number of works that involve, you know, taking dictionaries or books and um, erasing or removing words or elements uh, uh, to them, uh, as well as you did some sort of like blind printing. And I mean, a lot of it, 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 not all of your work is is text based, but it seems like it's gravitated towards being more textually oriented as you've I, I'm assuming done one series given you new ideas and started to do other series uh, 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 with them. And I, I was um, watching some uh, a, a video you made at the beginning of the pandemic, and you said in a very poignant way, I'm just going to quote you to yourself, my practice relies on the language of others to make sense of the world. Now, just, I mean, parsing that sentence is is worth do, doing and talking a, a bit more about it but was it the the moment of the uh beginning of the pandemic or the weight of that statement that made it a poignant moment i and to be honest with you i couldn't fully tell the emotion you, you were either feeling or so i mean i guess that's what why it's so fascinating because you're trying to dope out what's going on here yeah. uh and all so i just wanted to hear more from you about that <laughs> i think the um the emotion behind that statement was probably like envy of artists who could respond quickly to the moment because it, the making of the work is how I, and I think a lot of other artists make sense. It's in the process of making something that you understand the world. I think writers do this, you know, it's singers. It's like the, it's the act of making, but my practice has like long revolved or, um, relied on the language of others. I don't write, I hate writing. But it's when someone else says something and I can I can kind of edit it or parse it. Uh, I can compare it to something else. I can find the problem in the text. That's what I need in order to begin a new work. And so the beginning of the pandemic, we were all, again, like the, like the Aeneid, we're like in the moment, we're lost at sea and there is no resolution or no one's writing about it yet because it's, you know, we didn't know it was the beginning. And there was no text then to... Uh, for me to make work to make sense of. And so I had to like live, I had, I started looking even further back. I mean, that's where uh, the, the working with the Odyssey, I went really far back working with the Odyssey or the Aeneid became crucial to understanding that, um, that election moment or this pandemic moment, or this like disintegration of, of all that we thought we knew and relied upon kind of feeling the Odyssey was, um, I started comparing translations of only book 13 when Odysseus finally gets home after 10 years uh, at war and 10 years just crying every time he lands on the wrong shoreline. And he finally lands on his own country, his own land, and he doesn't recognize it. And he asks these really beautiful questions that in, I think, 18, oh, 1980, maybe, the translator translates that Greek question to be, what I don't know this place. So who are the men who were born here? Tell me who, who are the men here? And then by, I don't know, 2017, the question is translated. No, but who are the people who dwell in this place? And men becomes people and born versus dwell as a qualification for belonging to a place. It's a very different question, but at the heart of it is all about disorientation. I don't recognize my homeland and I had to look really far back <laughs> to find a text that could speak to that for me to speak to these last few years yeah yeah what has it been (laughs) 
too many. Yeah. Uh, what's your marker? The the pandemic, the the political problems. I mean, we could go. You know, what your your one's lack of recognition depends on one's framework. I I, yes. I presume, but but uh, yeah, I, that makes sense. And I I guess I now understand more that uh, you're expressing the frustration of um, a much larger thing. I'm I'm reminded of that line. I cannot remember the German philosopher, or I just don't want to make the mistake of it, but it's the owl of Minerva flies um, at dusk, right? You know, the we only understand things when they're over. Yeah. And I think you you captured that so well, just in that uh, uh, brief statement that that's, you're, you're in the middle of something, the beginning of something quite overwhelming, and you can't actually begin to address it till others have and process on top of their process. So you have to go back to, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a Greek epics to, to be able to make sense of it. Do you, do you do, I mean, besides the laser cutting, do you work in other sort of uh, paper media? You talked a little bit about painting or, or earlier. I was making a joke about drawing, but I, do you, do you, do you draw? Do you make prints? Do you do other, uh, you know, sort of processes? Yeah. The um, other work on paper in the show is Dixie. So it's um, the first time I worked with Dixie, Dixie's Lands, the horrible 1859 minstrel songs where it begins, blackface song, uh, written by Dan Emmett. The first time I worked with that, that contrafacta of Dixie, uh, I was doing a project for Davidson College in North Carolina, and they invited me to look through their archives. And so I found a version of Dixie that was written by one of their professors some time ago. And so I um, started researching other versions of where Dixie, do you know that song? Is that familiar? Dixie? Dixie, yes. Well, listen, I've done a lot of talks now, and I don't know if it's because I'm outside of the South or it's an age thing, but people don't have the same relationship to Dixie. Their skin doesn't, like, crawl when they hear Dixie. That's that's fascinating in its own right, but uh, uh, as, as they like to say on the Internet, I'm old enough to remember <laughs> when when a lot of those uh, songs, know, you know, uh, a lot of what the, uh, Stephen Foster and the American Songbook and all, you know, yeah. uh, unfortunately many of them beautiful tunes, but also deeply that come out of minstrel shows and that whole uh, a line of... Um, American music and all were just considered standards and no one questioned them and it, it wasn't considered uh, even a- appropriate to make a, a comment about. Now we do the opposite and yeah. people get all upset about why. We, and I was like, well, it's always been there. <laughs> and, and maybe it would be easier if we just, you know, set that one aside for a little. And, oh, and I guess that, so let's go back to a, 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 another issue or, or the same. This thing of taking a, a, a melody and rewriting it is exists for a real reason, right? It's, a, it's about uh, creating a sense of community based on something familiar, but then adapting it to being present-minded or, or trying to take the weight of it and turn it towards your particular uh, uh, cause. And one of the things before there was mass media that was very important were folk songs. And so it's not an accident that these are repetitions. These were consciously mm-hmm. latched onto. And I suppose the, the present day, uh, you know, analog would be memes, taking a familiar image and repeating it in many different uh, uh, ways. Uh, and and coming up with different meetings, often contradictory, opposed uh, uh, meetings for, for people. 
Yeah. And it was also very, you know, it's very economical to print. So if we all know the, we all know the melody, I can just print these new lyrics and say tune to, right. But it does create this assumption that to belong to this place, we all, we all have to know the same songs. This is the kind of premise of Edie Hirsch that if we all know the same things, these 5,000 things, then we'll feel like we belong to this land together. We don't all know the same thing, especially now. We don't all know the same thing. Or maybe we never did. Um, yeah. And so it, it is very, it was a much more common early American practice. And I think today the kind of, you know, it's like a weird Al Yankovic kind of thing today. We don't take it as seriously, but they were very, it was a serious practice of rewriting songs. And I do love that assumption that, um, I can give, I can kind of call out these new lyrics and you can respond with them that we can learn a new song together in the moment is a kind of beautiful democratic idea, egalitarian. Can I ask you a, a yeah. question about, you know, the venue you see for yourself? And by that, I mean, a lot of your work is institutional in the sense that it requires either a framework or a, a openness for people to come and see, many people to come and see it and all. And do you conceive of it that way? Or is it, you know, Collectors have a, a different role and often both support and experience work in a different way. When you're making work, do you have a kind of end user or a venue in mind, or is that sort of irrelevant to you? This is what I need to make. This is how I see see this, and then I'll figure out who wants to, you know, put it on or 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 host mm. it or uh, you know provide uh, access to. It. Sometimes it's a like the Davidson work that first uh, Dixie piece was about. Um, they wanted me to make something that their students would. They wanted me to interrogate their archive. It's like being welcomed into the underbelly of an institution, and to make something that they then have to live. They have to live with because they are living with the impact of their historical choices. Just to like make it known. Most of the time, I try not to think about who's going to see this thing ever. I try not to think about viewer at all. It clouds the work. Um, and it, you, I mean, especially these days, it's like I'm, I'm confused by the world. I need a text to help me make sense of the world. And if I can do that for myself, I assume that others will find it helpful too. But I can't keep their psyches in mind when I'm making or it won't be a, it won't be a good work. So you're not thinking about a market. You're thinking about oh, I, hope not. I need to make this and we'll figure out who who supports it. Yes. <laughs> if I thought about them, yes. <laughs> yeah, other you know because then you can to stay true who had told me this? Larry Walker was the professor emeritus where I went uh, to Georgia State in Atlanta for my MFA. And he said, the minute you start thinking of someone in your practice, making decisions for others, you've lost the thread. And if you do it too many times, you might never get it back. You know, you could do it once. You might be okay. Uh, the second time, who knows? So you're you're tempting fate the more you do that. It's not worth it. I, I'm tempted to leave that as a closing note, but I have to, <laughs> have to ask because you've done, you know, these multiple songs. Is there another sort of tune with these repetitions that you're thinking of next? Or is there, you know, where, where does this work that leads you uh Know, forward as an artist. There's one more hymnal that I, I need to make so that it becomes a kind of trinity, you know. Uh, so it's My Country Tis of Thee, Star Single Banner, and then Battle Hymn of the Republic, which is a, it's like if you want to get a song stuck in your head, that's a good one. Yeah. 
And there may be some uh, panel works that come out of that. You know, the Star Spangled Banner works in the show, they're all, um, they're dealing with versions of the anthem. But then I'm looking for moments when the new songwriter, the new lyricist for the anthem, they like describe the land. Tell me what is this land that we live in? And so the one we know is home of the free, land of the brave, land of the free, home of the brave. Um, but instead, these versions, it becomes land of, instead of land of the free, it's land of the freed. It's very different. Land of the coward and the tyrant and the south. Land of the brave, but also, you know, land of the, um, land of the slave. And all of those are really accurate versions of this place. More accurate than just the sh- any one version. But anyway, Battle Hymn of the Republic is next. And then I really want to work out, I think I need to bring image back into my practice. It's going to be tricky. So no language, but it's, um, it's still linguistic because it's based on floriography, the language of flowers. So it'll be image, but still translatable. And what's interesting to me is still the translations. It is not the image. It's not the beauty of the flowers. Um, but that's, it's hard. My, my brain is rewired to understand the form of language, no longer the form of imagery. It's taking some practice. It must be hard to be a visual artist for whom the art or the, you know, your, your, the common theme I hear from you is the strange and familiar. Yeah. The, these things that are almost hermeneutic, that uh, they change, but they, but they both become new, but also help you understand the old in a new way. And to, uh, the deeper you get into that, the further you get from the visual aspect uh, of it, but you are creating visual works, mm-hmm. right? Uh, ultimately, mm-hmm. the physical object is the visual work. And, and you know, even if it's the three-dimensionality of it or the fact that it falls apart or whatever, the, it, it, none of that happens without uh, 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 you know, being able to see it, hold it, feel it. Mm-hmm. Ah, listen, if you have any tricks, I'll take them. It's tricky. <laughs> it's tricky to go tricky to work the other way. I got no advice for you on that. <laughs> that. Bethany, this has been uh, uh, really enjoyable and uh, I, I do wish you the best with the show and figuring out um, uh, the, the next pro- project, but it, it has been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.